Hey everybody, this is Paul. The episode you're about to listen to was a lost episode in that it was uh, literally lost for a little while. Uh, the original files were on an external drive that I misplaced, but it has been found and all is well. It was recorded back at the tail end of 2020, and this discussion went really, really long. We had a whole lot to say about this particular comic, so in order to keep the running time down to a reasonable length, I've cut out the opening discussion and we just get right into the main topic. I plan on releasing that opening talk uh, as a bonus episode in the near future. But until then, without further ado, here is mine and Brian's thoughts on Neil Gaiman's Books of Magic. When all is ready... I throw this switch. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Collected Edition, a comic book podcast where we discuss the famous and infamous runs and story arcs throughout the history of comics. I'm Paul Matthew Carr, and with me, as always, is Brian Reese. Hey, Paul. Today on the program, we'll be discussing the Neil Gaiman classic, Books of Magic, or as J.K. Rowling calls it, my idea book. <laughs> uh, Brian, this week was your recommendation. Please tell us all about it. It was. So, Books of Magic was a four-issue prestige limited series published by DC Comics in 1991 to 19, or 1990 to 1991. Written by Neil Gaiman, and featuring art by John Bolton, Scott Hampton, Charles Vess, and Paul Johnson, the series was intended by DC Editorial to be a reintroduction of the magical universe into continuity. In some cases, this was to be a property preservation exercise to keep said properties from public domain. Fair enough. But what Gaiman and company did with this road copyright exercise was to create a very singular narrative that not only preserved the nature of magic in the DC universe, but served to introduce a very unique character, Tim Hunter, who would become a major player in the nascent Vertigo world to come. It should be noted that J.K. Rowling must have been paying very close <laughs> attention to these proceedings. That said, the story at hand follows the efforts of the so-called Trench Coat Brigade, which features the Phantom Stranger, John Constantine, Dr. Occult, and the mysterious Mr. E, in their mission to teach Sway the burgeoning awakening of what might be the most powerful force of magic in the world. And that person is a 12-year-old boy with all the power and all the adolescent angst that the, that the current world provides. Through a series of stages, each hosted by or guided by the four supposed arbiters of magic, Tim Hunter is taken on a journey through a whirlwind of history and possibility from the dawn of time until the very end of the universe. Each avatar attempts to teach Hunter a lesson and to impart upon his young mind lessons that would shape him into the individual who best exemplifies the proper use of magic. Each of these journeys are rife with danger and are compromised by the intent of his guides. Through this, we meet the history of the DC universe as reflects upon a published world that stretches through a limited but vast world creation. What Gaiman does is fascinating. As an assignment, he was presented with a task that was generically bookmaking, a Bible of definition from the known hagiography. Instead, he opens up a brand new world of possibility, juxtaposing his own creations within a larger context and presenting a whole new realm of exploration. 
one in which magic has multiple definition and varied application. Tim Hunter is a much maligned character in recent years, mostly due to bad writing and misunderstanding, some of which has to do with the downfall of Vertical Comics, and some has to do with the continual march of the costume situationalism. He has been very poorly used of late, along with many of the characters that populate these books. Gaiman created a world of possibility in these comics. Tim Hunter could have been one of the most fascinating and important pieces of the DC Universe. Instead, the aftermath left us with much more of the same, which is more to the pity, alas. So, I, I editorialized a tad in there, which was uh, not meant to reflect on the comic that we're covering now. But, uh, Paul, what did you think? Well, first of all, this is great. But I just want to say, point out a couple of things. There's a lot to unpack in that introduction, which was awesome, by the way. Uh, but I want to get to a lot of the things you pointed up, pointed out. And you used the word hagiography, which uh, I've not used a lot in comic book podcasts. <laughs> well done. Thank you. <laughs> yes. uh, but so back to the, the, the subject at hand. I love this. Uh, I am a little biased is because I think Neil Gaiman is one of the best writers. Full stop. That's that's writing today. Right. Uh, so I'm a little yeah, because I'm biased about that. And I think even the worst Neil Gaiman story is still actually pretty good. Yeah. And this is one of and this is this is far from the worst. Oh no, this is one of the top tier stories. Yes, uh, absolutely. I I I hope I made it clear that I don't blame this story for anything that followed. I think this is an incredible story. Yes, and um, we're, you know, and that's we're, we're giving we're giving we're giving it away early. <laughs> That's yeah, that's fine. I mean, there's something I wanted to get to in our discussion is the way that Gaiman sets up Timothy Hunter, um, right. and we'll get into that as we discuss the story. But he yes. basically sets him up as the most powerful magician in the DC world, right? And he does it in a very engaging way. But we'll get to that as we talk about the story. Yeah, this is just for for something that was because this story wasn't offered to him first. It was, it was offered no, it was to a couple of Demattis, I think, was right. offered it initially. And no one wanted to do it because it was just supposed to be, hey, do a travelogue of all the magical people in the DC universe. Right. And it's like I said, I mean, this, this was like in the intro, this, this was literally just meant to be like a very generic, let's keep copyright. Exactly. And Gaiman took that and ran with it. He, he, he delivered. I mean, you basically meet every magical character in the DC universe. But in doing so, he does several things. First of all, tells a really good story, introduces a great character, and, and he adds themes and ideas to the story that, that really resonate, not just, not just with this story, but um, again, I don't want to, I, I, I wanna, uh, we'll get to this when we talk about the themes of the, of the, of the books, but he does right. a fantastic job. He took Yeoman's work and made it something special. Yeah. Yeah, and set up well, a series I mean, that was gonna that goes forward because I mean I know he didn't write the ongoing that comes after this, but he basically said, "Here's the world, have fun with it." And I think the ongoing didn't come till two or three years later. Yeah, I, it, yeah, it didn't. But well, until Vertigo was fully established, because this isn't right. a Vertigo and comic; it's still a DC. This is comic. not a Vertigo. It was eventually folded into Vertigo with subsequent trades. Right. But this was a DC proper comic. Yes, absolutely. Um, and, and we also have Neil Gaiman, like, sort of coming into the height of his Gaimaness. Yes. <laughs> his Sandmaniness. His Sandmaniness. Yes. Um, yeah, Sandman was really starting to take off at this point and really starting right. 
it was selling gangbusters. And I think Gaiman really got his feet at this point to say, oh, I know how to tell stories. Let me do this. And a couple quick uh, things that I should note before we really dive in. This is one of the most gorgeous comics. Oh, yeah. And I, mean, I love this, this. This is up there with, uh, with Moonshadow. Okay. Yeah, no, in, I think in, it's... In, I probably in, wouldn't in, go that far, but, uh, but it's well, beautiful. Moonshadow had the... Uh, the watercolor. Moonshadow was able to have a consistent vision across all 12 issues. Mm-hmm. Whereas this is... It, it is broken up like... This. So this is four issues. And each one is set up, which we'll get into, is set up uh, based on various aspects of, man- uh, of magic and various timelines. And so it actually makes sense that it is a different artist for each of the four books that comprise this. And each artist rises to the occasion in an incredible manner and creates these worlds and creates these, this visual style that really is striking. Yes, and each, each visual style really fits the story that they're telling. Right. Yeah, and I love the kind of the watercolor painted look uh, to a couple of the issues, and yeah, it's really just a, a just a nice looking thing. Yeah. Um, there there are a few instances art wise where it's very reflective of the early '90s. I don't want to pinpoint a specific. I don't want to pinpoint specific artists, but there's one artist in particular I think who, let's say, is the not the biggest name on this, who <laughs> maybe has a little bit of the kind of early 90s visual but yeah. he still acquits himself quite nicely overall yes absolutely which brings us to you know on this program we really uh make fun of the 90s with their you know the extreme stuff which is valid but at the same time i mean this i know this is towards the end of the 80s and just starting the 90s but there's a lot that came there's a, there's a there's an aesthetic that came out of the 90s especially vertigo right that is really impressive and really um really allowed for some great stories and storytelling uh, and, and really expanded the, the medium of comics. I mean, for all the bad things I say about the 90s, some really good stuff came out of it. Yeah. And uh, this is sort of the beginning of that. It definitely has, if you look at the, this comic, it definitely has a vertigo feel. You know, there's a style right. of vertigo. Well, there's l- a look house. Wise. Yeah. Yeah, there's a house style with vertigo that uh, it's really weird. Like you can read a vertigo comic and, with with some exceptions, such as, you know, Preacher, where Steve Dillon had his own style or whatever, but you get some of the, I don't want to call them the the standard Vertigo series, where there was definitely a house style. And Marvel has a house style. Oh, yeah. DC has a house style. Uh, and Vertigo had, like, a house style as well. I happen to like Vertigo's house style, so... I'm perfectly fine yeah, with that, that. That wasn't that wasn't a rip on on either of them, but there is a very definitely a Vertigo like style. You know, again, I I mean, I don't mean for every Vertigo title, but you can read a ver- if 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 someone gave you a random comic and you didn't know where it was from, you could probably read it and say, "Oh, that's Vertigo." Yeah, just look at it and say, "Oh yeah, Vertigo." Just visually, if you, if you had all of the dialogue stripped away. And you just visually saw it, you would say, oh, that's where to go. Yep, absolutely. I do want to address something really quickly in that Gaiman himself denies the connection between Harry Potter and Books of Magic. He says it was just a cultural touchstone that, they, that both he, uh, he and Rowling 
we're drawing upon. I have to call bullshit on that, but <laughs> I, I do too. But kudos to Gaiman for not causing a fuss and a rivalry and, and all that. Right. I mean, had this been Alan Moore, lawsuit, lawsuits would have been flying. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, but it's it's the it's hard not to both visually and thematically. It, it's hard not to read books of magic or any Timothy Hunter stuff yeah. and not see Harry Potter. Exactly. I mean, it's just, it's just hard not to. And I don't think JK Rowling was reading Vertigo comics. I don't think she was reading books of magic, but the similarities are just eerie. Oh, they're striking yeah. right up to the point where one of the climactic things is that his, his owl sacrifices himself so that he can live. Right. I mean, that's that's so close. <laughs> right. and, the, and the fact that he it's an owl. Exactly. Well, he's a mop-top kid with black hair, wearing giant glasses. glasses. Yes. I mean, the similarities are striking. But you know what? Neil's okay with it. We should be okay with it. Yeah. We're on a first-name basis, basis, you know, me and Gaiman. Right, yeah. Our, our good friend, uh, <laughs> Neil Gaiman, who is certainly listening to this. But he, he's, he, you know, I think he's done okay for himself. I think so. And uh, he, he doesn't necessarily have the same baggage, uh, say, that uh, the, the other creator is currently experiencing. Yes. That's, an, that's a conversation for another day. That's a different conversation. One we may never really fully... Actually, there's a conversation that we're never going to have. But let's get on to the story. Okay. Lead the way, my friend. <laughs> well, what is interesting about the story is it is, it is set up in four... It's four issues, and each four, each of the issues are not self-contained, but in some ways they are. It's sense. a Christmas carol for magic. It, it's right, and each of the so there's a lot of. And I don't know if Gaiman uh, did this on purpose. There are, I mean, we, this this could be a Christmas carol. This could be um, Chaucer. Oh yeah, right. Uh, this could be. Um, oh, uh, this could be um, Lord of the Rings. Um, Interesting. What this does is it's it's set up as initially. Well, let's start from the beginning. So in the, in the first issue, we we have the ye old generic setup. We have what's called the what what is John Constantine humorously refers to as the trench coat brigade, mm -hmm. which then carries on throughout uh, the series. But uh, it is for magic practitioners, or not necessarily magic practitioners but for Occult. characters with esoteric or ethereal origin who are gathered together because there is existing within this world a, a person who they believe is beginning to experience or show powers, particularly magical powers, that are way beyond that which any other character has or any other currently living human being and so their goal as they gather again it's uh, you know it's the it, it's the chaucerian you know the group of travelers or the group of people who are then gathering and they have a tale to tell and in this instance it's not so much the tale to tell but a guidance to give well it's like i love the beginning of that where they discuss what to do with timothy i mean you get it from like it's a wonderful life where the angels all right. look down and say, what's going on down there? Or, yeah. or even like clash of the Titans where 
you know, the gods are looking down and seeing this really gifted individual and let's guide that. Let's guide right. this characters. That there is concern as to will said individual make the correct choice or they make the wrong choice. And there's a bunch of conversation about whether there is a right or wrong choice. We have one character who thinks that they should just nip this in the bud and kill Timothy Hunter. There is another character who thinks that there is a balance in the world and Timothy Hunter, whichever choice he makes, keeps the balance or keeps keeps things in balance. There is another character, John Constantine. Let's be honest, it's John Constantine. I think John Constantine is actually the most interesting character in, in this entire thing. As per usual. As per usual. And, but I think that's just not me. We'll get to some of that. I, I don't think that's just me putting one of my favorite characters in a spotlight that isn't necessarily deserved by the narrative. I think that the narrative is, yeah. well, we'll get to that. But, uh, you know, there's there's all this sort of deep discussion as to how Timothy Hunter should be guided, whether Timothy Hunter should be guided, whether he should be allowed to exist as, at all. And the, the decision is ulti- ultimately made that each of the Phantom Stranger, Dr. E, or Mr. E, Dr. Occult, and John Constantine will all four have a responsibility of guiding him through aspects of magic. And therein lies the sort of the, the setup. You know, um, again, like if you, like I say Chaucerian, you say Christmas Carol. Both of those, I think, are apt in certain ways. Maybe Christmas Carol is even closer because there's a, a an attempt at a moral center. Well, there's also, they, they do the past, the present, the future, the future, with the addition of the other world as well. The, that which is unknown. Or right. The, yeah, the, uh, yeah, the, the, the fairy uh, realm. Yeah. Right. Amongst other things. But uh, it, it's a really interesting, you know, it's a tried and true idea that I think Gaiman really plays with and makes it very much his own as, as a writer. So any comparisons we make to other pieces of literature, I think those played a part, but I think that, that Gaiman is telling his own story as well, which he wasn't supposed to. He was just really supposed to just tell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was supposed to be a handbook of who all these people are. Right. And he did a great job of, of fitting, he did a great job of fitting Timothy into the DC magical world by, you know, he introduces all the major players, he sets the stage, he sets, he explains how magic works for the most part, but he also shows us, and this is, this is the brilliance of it, he shows us that Timothy belongs there. And although he's a new character, he lets us know that this kid is on par with all these established characters and says, you know, this kid's important, pay attention to him. It's 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 really quite well done, and um, he exceeded expectations by by far. <laughs> yes, but continue. I'm sorry. Oh no, that's fine. It's so so we have this sort of uh, setup, and I, I would also like to say from the get go, and because we might mention this a couple times, this may be our first crossover episode in a brief way. Yes, in in a brief way, but I think it plays into it that, that there is. A reference, uh, regular listeners will will note that we covered uh, Alan Moore's Swamp Thing run in which we did the mm-hmm. Murder of Crows collection, uh, in which case uh, there were there was a moment of magic in Murder of Crows where several magical characters were killed off. 
And that is referenced not just a couple times uh, in the narrative uh, going forward. And so uh, we, may, we may mention that, we may not. Uh, anyone familiar with both of those, uh, both that story, the Swamp Thing story arc and this story arc, will probably have already be aware of that. But. And there's some you know, magical battles that go on off panel during the Constantine storyline. Yeah. We're interested. We're introduced to the Cold Flame, yes. Who we never see, and and really, which is very interesting. Gaiman is like, well, there's this thing called the Cold Flame, and you're going to know they're a threat, but I'm never going to actually show you this. <laughs> yes, he, that's not true. He does show there are numerous attempts on Timothy Hunter's life throughout this series, but uh, the, the, it's it's not directly. We we don't see that at some point Constantine. Mr. E, Phantom Stranger, and Dr. Occult have to like go off panel and yes. they have to fight this battle in India against the Cold Flame. We don't see the battle. We're only told that they did this thing. Yeah, I, I, I love that too. He got, uh, Timothy gets a, be a whole other series. Yeah, Timothy gets a little, uh, <laughs> just a rundown. It's like, oh, it was amazing. You should have seen it. <laughs> but we never get to see it. At least right. not, in this, not in this story. Not in this story. That said, so the setup is that eventually the trench coat brigade makes these decisions that they're going to go forward and they're they're all four going to take part in the education of young Timothy Hunter. And each one is sort of assigned a different portion of it. And in the first issue, illustrated by phenomenally by John Bolton. Oh yeah. Holy crow. But uh so eventually they confront Timothy Hunter. And of course, Timothy Hunter is like, you know, he's, he's a 12 year old kid skateboarding, you know, and he thinks that they're like a bunch of perverts <laughs> initially. Right. He's right. Like, he's like, there's some old dudes trying to like get up in my business. And well, uh, you're a 12 year old and someone comes up and says, do you believe in magic? <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah, yeah you go. Get away from me, creep. Right. But eventually he is confronted by all four. He's, he's confronted it several times with in a few panels by each of them and eventually it's it's Constantine who finally gets him to settle down and be like hey kid we're doing this thing and then he's joined by the other three and uh you know i there there are a couple really interesting parts of this dialogue wise that i that i think is uh, that that's interesting because during their conversation with Tim Hunter uh where they're trying to convince him that magic is real and Timothy Hunter is is being a kid and he's kind of giving them sass, right? And he's kind of taking the piss on them because he's like, you know, what, what are you guys talking about or whatever? There are a couple, a couple of the major moments before Phantom Stranger takes over and takes Timothy Hunter to the past uh, that I think are really important. I think this is Neil Gaiman's gift for dialogue are, are really important where at one point, you know, they, they ask Timothy Hunter, it's like, are, 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 do you feel like there is... A world beyond this do you feel like there's something missing in your life and he's and, and, and timothy hunter says like at some point he's like he, he imagines that yes wouldn't it be great if there was a better world or a weirder and more exciting world and i think that plays into what comes forward there's also the point where timothy hunter is using names and he is scolded about the use of names you know the 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 four uh, are basically like names have real names have power. You don't ask what your name is. You ask, how are you called? Exactly. So that's why you get into Mr. E, Dr. Occult, right. you know, 
And even John Constantine, they're like, well, that's your name. He says, and he says, is it? Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so, but uh, then Constantine is also like, I'm not like the other three. That's true. That's true. And, you know, he's like, is that really my real name? And he's like, even if it was my real name, I am not the same as these other three. Again, very interesting. And, and at some point, you know, so they, they talk to the hunter. Oh, go ahead. I, I just want to get, I just want to touch on something really quickly that you, that sure. you mentioned. Um, there's something that, that strikes me and, it, and, and I, I think Neil Gaiman does this a lot in his work. When Timothy is asked, you know, does he believe in magic? He says, no, but I want there to be because right. and yeah and it's, a better... yeah but that's um uh i you know i have a person when i was growing up i just wanted so badly for magic to be real because the world would be so much more magical so much more interesting if it did exist when when i was a kid i if if i'm being brutally honest here like at maybe five years old or something and this was a much less cynical time i think than than it is now but there was a point where I went into my parents' closet hoping that I would find my way to Narnia. <laughs> I, I think everybody has a feeling like that. Yeah. You know? I mean, I, was I stupid? Well, I don't, all five-year-olds are stupid. But uh, I, I, <laughs> I, I knew the truth, but at the same time, I was like, but what if? What if I went into my parents' closet, i.e. their wardrobe, and was able to come out on the other side of Narnia. I think I think everyone has that feeling, and it, I, I'm pretty sure it doesn't go away. I mean, that's why the dark places in in our room still scare us, and that's why um, that's why religion holds a good, you know, a hold on a lot of people because there's a mystery and a magic there. Uh, but so I, you know, that's that idea that Timothy brings up really struck me. And as the as the story progresses, we find that. Magic it does exist, but only if you want it. But um, but again, I just I just wanted to point that out because I think it's really important to this story. Yeah, and I think uh, also, and we'll get on this uh, later. But I think it's important to note going forward that uh, so it's the magical beings they're they're giving Timothy Hunter a choice. They're saying he has a choice whether to accept magic or reject it. And then his life will proceed forward based on what choice he makes, whether to accept magic or not. And I'm wondering, Paul, do you think I should, in the fourth issue, we get a callback to this first issue. Paul, do you think we should, I should give it away now or should I wait? Well, do you know what I mean? No, I know exactly what you mean. Uh, it's, the big, it's the big reveal at the right. end. Yeah, there's we can do that. There's a throwaway line that actually becomes one of the most important lines. Right. Uh, well, I think we can do that. I don't. It doesn't matter if we skip around. I think. So okay. So, the Phantom Stranger is the first to sort of ask Timothy Hunter. Uh, you know, they're like, you have to make a ch- at the end of all this, or at some point, you have to make a choice whether to accept magic or not. And the setup is that. Timothy Hunter is going to make the choice at the end. So then the Phantom Stranger takes over and he's like, opens up a door and the Phantom Stranger is going to take Timothy Hunter into the past. And we're talking like the the beginning of all time and show him the history of magic going forward. So he's like, you know, he's like, will you join me? And Timothy Hunter says, I'll come with you. Where are we going? And it's just a minor, he's like, okay, sure. Let's see what this is all about. And that's important. (laughs) 
Yes. Anybody, um, anybody, yeah. anybody who gets where we're going is going to know where this ends up. So yes. that said, <laughs> the Phantom Stranger takes, brings Timothy into, through this magical door, proceeds to take Timothy Hunter from the birth of creation through the war in heaven and the fall of Lucifer, through the birth of earth and demons, through Atlantis, through cavemen, through Egypt, through Asia, through Greece. They meet Merlin and they go through the middle dark, you know, sort of the middle and dark ages. That's a very brief synopsis. Throughout all this, the Phantom Stranger is informing Timothy about all these things. And again, the, 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 the visuals on all of this are amazing. Mind blowing. Uh, just mind blowing. John Bolton, holy crow. I, I think that's the fourth or fifth time I've said Holy Crow. <laughs> As they're going through this, it's a very um, very Dante kind of a thing where right. you go through and, you're, and he's giving an overall broad, he's saying, oh, look at this person and this person, but there's always one that's pulled out right. to, to talk directly to, uh, to Timothy. Uh, and, and the whole point of this is, is and this is why like, I kind of say Chaucer, because he is, throughout this entire series, he is given stories by those who are touched by magic. Exactly. I would have, it's kind of a toss up. I, I was, I was thinking more of Dante, who's always given a little backstory of the person who lived through this. Sure. And, uh, cause it's usually typically the person he talks to says, don't be a magician, just get away from it and stop. But he's already on the path. But he has shown, yeah, he has shown throughout all, uh, throughout this, you know, the fan stranger is taking him to important points in the past. And, mm -hmm. and again, this is meant to reflect the DC universe, but it ultimately reflects not just the DC universe, but like canon in so many other sort of ideas of what magic is and what magic isn't. Yes. And the whole point that Phantom Stranger is trying to do, and even Constantine and even, even uh, Dr. Colton and uh, Mr. E is there, there he's given perspective. Right. Yeah. He's allowed to see, you know, where this, this thing that he's about to embark on, where did it come from and who are the major players involved? Right. Yeah. And during this, it's like he meets, he meets Merlin, a young Merlin, and yes. he meets Zatara, which is Z Z Zatanna's father. And he meets uh, Sargon the Sorcerer. That's where he has some reference to Morgan Crows because both of them reference having been killed at the same time during a war of magic in some ways. And I think, you know, one of my favorite, uh, one of my favorite pieces in there is when, um, so the Phantom Stranger is taking him through all this and we see like the rise and fall of magic and how the rise and fall of magic mirror the rise and fall of science. Yes. And, and we see like, we see periods where magic is at its apex and we see periods where magic disappears and science uh, is at its apex. And, and it's, it's cyclical. I mean, it, 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 it's, it's, a, it's an up and down thing. Neither are at their apex at the same time. Right. And that gets into the idea of magic exists when you believe it. Magic's, right. magic's only, you only see magic when you want to see it. And so when science is at its apex, science doesn't want to see magic. Science wants to right. see a different explanation. Right. And this is where, like, one of my favorite quotes in the entire thing, and I, I wrote it down. Uh, I apologize to folks if I'm reading from a script, but I, my memory isn't going to remember. So the Phantom Stranger tells Timothy at some point, he says, science is a way of talking about the universe in words that bind it to common reality. Magic is a method of talking to the universe in words that it cannot ignore. 
the two are rarely compatible. Excellent stuff. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this is this is game and word spinning in, in ways that very few writers can. Yeah. He has an ability to create mythology out of the most simple things. Right. You know, yeah. Yeah. He he can mythologize the most mundane situation and it's uh, it's very impressive. And it's to me that's one of the more most telling things because they're they're the, the conflict between science and magic are are so strong and I don't know if Gaiman really attempts to explore that in a super super in depth way, but I think he he uses this opportunity to acknowledge it. I think he revisits this again in the fourth book, but yes, uh, the future, yeah. yeah, the 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 future future. And uh, it just, it's, it's a really, you know, a really fascinating, a really interesting way that Gaiman introduces things without being heavy handed and allows us to think about it without him over explaining. Yeah. I mean, the guy's a master storyteller and this, uh, let's just, let's move on. <laughs> I have, I have yeah. thoughts, but I want to talk about it later. He's a master storyteller that is working with four other master storytellers. Exactly. I, so, you know, I mean, we basically, we, we get, I have to stop saying basically, I need to find other words. In this first issue, and, and of course, eventually, uh, Phantom Stranger brings him back to time or to, to current time uh, and, uh, you know, in, in preparation to turn him to, over to somebody else. But I think it's his, his introduction for Timothy Hunt. I mean, it's, it's, it's again, it's, it's 101. Phantom Stranger is Magic 101. He's, he's the class we take. He's, if we're English majors, he's the intro to theory or the intro to criticism or just the first class you take in college where you're reading the basics. Yeah, you have to have that little fundamental, uh, you know, foundation of, you know, here are the classic works and then now let's get into the more modern stuff. Right. Which is where Mr. Constantine comes in. Right. So we come to book two, which is uh, called The Shadow World. And that idea is that Constantine is then tasked with, and this is the one that I think was probably most closely aligned with what DC probably wanted. More than likely. Yeah. So we have Timothy Hunter is, is handed over to Constantine and it's Constantine's job to show him magic as it is and the world as it is. And this is the one where, you know, Constantine takes him all around, well, mostly America and England, with some exceptions. Yeah, the important places. The important places. <laughs> Don't add us, we're joking. And this is the one where we meet Madame Xanadu, Spectre, the new Dr. Fate. We meet, we meet, you know, Boston Brand, a.k.a. Dead Man. We meet Baron Winter, Jason Blood, Dr. 13, Zatanna, Tanarak, Faust, Wizard. Yeah. It's, it's the tour de force of the, ma of, of the current DC magical universe. And of yes. course, it gets to be Constantine who gets to do that because he's the most cynical. <laughs> you could argue that Mr. D, Mr. E is the most cynical, but he's actually the least cynical of them. He is the most sure of his purpose. He's the we'll most psychotic. Yeah. We'll get to him in a couple books. Right. But uh, yeah, I, I, I love the fact uh, there's, a, there's a, a lot of good ways that this is told. The fact that Boston Brand is, it's Boston Brand, correct? Yes. Yeah, boss. Uh, dead man, Boston Brand. <laughs> yeah, the way that he, because we never actually see him in his goofy red outfit. Right. Uh, we just see him kind of uh, possessing people. And, and having he's, them. The, he's, he's the protector. 
he, he's more of the protector than Constantine is, and he's more of the protector than Zatanna Zatana is. Exactly. Yeah, so he keeps popping up and giving advice to, to Timothy and having little conversations with him in various bodies. I, and, and a wide variety of bodies. Yeah. No, a wide variety of bodies. I mean, you know, it's white, black, male, female, child, adult. You know, so kudos to him for diversity. Um, <laughs> Uh, and we get our first instance of a long running joke of <laughs> Timothy ordering us uh, Southern comfort. <laughs> <laughs> he keeps trying to order booze and everybody just gives him ginger ale. Which is a funny little run on joke. Right. You know, the, the idea of this issue is, uh, it, again, to me, this is probably the most fascinating to me. That's a thin line <laughs> between <laughs> which of these issues is the most fascinating. And I think, again, it's, it, it may have to do with the Constantine thing or whatever but uh it's 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 tim being dragged along and he gets the most perspective or most relatable perspective i should say i think he gets a lot of perspective in all of these other issues too in various ways but these are going to be the most relatable perspectives to him uh he's going to have the most relatable perspectives here and i think he gets the broadest swath of perspective Mm -hmm. because everyone he meets is uh, there's also the running gag of like everybody hates Constantine. Well, yeah. Well, that in and of itself, because Timothy himself is kind of snarky and 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 sassy, right? And he and he seems to relate more with Constantine than anyone any of the other trench coat brigade. He Absolutely. sort of he sort of sees Constantine a reflection of himself, and vice well, versa. Well, Constantine is also British. Yeah, so they have a lot in common. As is Timothy Hunter. So there's a commonality between the two. And we could get into uh, later in, in, in later stories. Timothy becomes a bit of an asshole the same way Constantine is. So. Right. But that's for later. But that's for later. But one of the most intriguing parts of this is, and it's interesting that Gaiman waits until the second issue and the meeting with, with Madame Xanadu. So Constantine's taking Tim to all these people. We've already said that. But So the Mad- Madame Xanadu, of course, does a tarot reading. Uh, reluctantly, because she's not happy to see John Constantine. So, she, but she ends up doing a tarot reading, and so I'm not super familiar with the concept of tarot. I, I don't uh, tarot cards. I, it's not a thing I've I really know a lot about. But she does like it's it's he picks four cards, and of course each card represents each of the four issues. Yes, um, and, but he waited. Gaiman waits to do that till the second issue. Well, no, it's good. I, I, I can't say that I'm an expert in tarot either. I mean, I know some of the basics just from just from reading this genre for a long time. But yeah, but I think it's really well done. And it should be pointed out again, the art, you know, the, the four panels of the four cards, it, it right. looks visually striking when you, when you see it. Yeah. And Scott yeah. Hampton is the perfect person to do the art for this arc. Yes, absolutely. I, I, yeah, I love, again, that watercolor hand But painted. vastly different than John Bolton's. Yes, Really good. I kind of almost washed out a little bit. So we're in faces the... are very unclear. Yes. And that, that, that's intentional. Yes. No, I, I, that's really good. But each of her, you know, I, I don't want to go into too much here because, you know, we do, this has to be less than five hours long. Uh, but each of the cards represents the journey that Tim is going to take. And it also suggests and adds some mystery to what each of the four guides, what their motives are. And in each one, she senses like danger. And each one does, each of the guides do present their own particular kind of danger. 
Right. Um, if nothing else, John Constantine just doesn't put a lot of thought into his protection. No, or does he? I mean, that's the thing. So at some point, it, like, so he's taken him around. And like, at some point, there's, uh, there's an attempt on Tim's life, uh, which uh, the Spectre saves. So, so they go to meet the Spectre, and the Spectre saves his life. The Spectre doesn't really have a lot of advice to give. I, at some point, he just says, stay pure. Well, of course, the Spectre is going to say, stay pure. You know, uh, Dr. Fate shows up, but he only shows up. And, and it's not the Dr. Fate that he meets previously, the Kent Nelson Dr. Fate. It's a different Dr. Fate. Dr. Fate shows up and he has to pull John Constantine away because this is when the battle with the cold flame is going to happen. This is where all these things happen right. off panel. Oh. But what he tells Constantine is that he has to find a safe place to deposit Tim Hunter so that Constantine can go and join the other three in this mysterious battle against the cold flame. And yeah. so that alters how John Constantine moves Timothy Hunter around the board, let's say the chessboard, as we say. And so one of the first places he tries to take him is Baron Winter's home, where Baron Winter, of course, is decidedly unhappy to see John Constantine <laughs> well. And also Jason Blood is there. And Jason Blood is, and I think this is important for later, Baron Winter knows who John Constantine is. He's not happy to see him. He thinks he's a clown, whatever. And Jason Blood is sort of like, well, I don't know who you are. We've never met. You, you're not a person of importance. And I think that's very intentional in Gaiman for, to see like the contempt that Constantine is held in, the practitioners of magic in the current day, and I think that's really important for what we see in the fourth book. But we're also going to see uh, at the end of this story how Constantine is held in, you know, just disdain and no one likes him, but he's also feared. Right. And I think that's so we, we see a lot of like, uh, man, Gaiman is so good. Uh, yes. Uh, so let's get to that. So eventually, so Constantine can't leave Timothy Hunter with. Baron Winter and Jason Blood because they they have no interest in protecting this kid. Yeah. They're, Plus they're awful they're, people. They're pretentious asses. Yes. So they go find Zatanna, Who, who's who's the only person on the planet who's happy to see John Constantine. Uh, yeah, I love Zatanna's just, uh, depiction in this. Mm -hmm. She's sort of happily happy and bubbly, and she's um, you know she's in San Francisco, so it has that sort of uh, I don't know what you can call it hippie flower child kind of feel to it. Right. And um, yeah, it's just, it's not how I normally see, or you normally see Zatanna. She's know. more of a free spirit. Exactly. No pun intended with the spirit aspect. And she, she does act, uh, if I can be forgiven, uh, as the sort of a, the mother figure. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and, uh, but then she makes a really, really, really bad decision. She takes Timothy to a party of evil magicians. <laughs> right, a Halloween party, no less. <laughs> That is filled with, yes, evil magicians. And, you know, she's all friendly with them because they're pseudo in the safe space, right? And we, we know that these sort of safe spaces of gathering um, exist in the DC universe. We have the, uh, the inn at the end of the world. We have the, uh, the bar. Uh, what is it called? It's the, well, anyway, there's, there are numerous places of, of safety where people of magic gather 
and they are neutral sites. And she assumes this is a neutral site. She assumes incorrectly. Yeah, and she assumes incorrectly. And there is a betrayal, not by Zatanna, but uh, by some of the other folks there, where the cold flame has put a price on Timothy Hunter's head. And at some point at this massive party with all of these sort of evil magicians and spirits and whatever, uh, they all turn on Timothy Hunter because they want to gather the bounty that is on Timothy Hunter's head. And this is the part where you refer to the Constantine returns. Depicted beautifully. You just yes. see uh, a match being lit on a matchbox lit. Mm-hmm. And then a, his hand cupped and lighting his cigarette. And Constantine just gives this perfect, does anyone else, does anyone want to mess with me? Basically. And they all back down. Right. Because he is, you know, no one likes him, but they fear him. But they fear him, and a lot of that fear is part of Constantine's power that has been presented by great writers throughout, uh, from Alan Moore to Cy Spurrier's genius aborted run. I'm not going to stop complaining about that. Uh, and, and you shouldn't. But, uh, you know, it, his very presence, and I think part of it is because Constantine is the constant, constant. He's the unknown that nobody can quite define who he is in this world. And nobody yeah. understands exactly what he is and who he is. And is this gruff Is this gruff persona that he puts on, is that truly him? Or is that just the front that he's putting on to, to, to scare this magical world? But with all of their power, they, they can't tell. They don't know. And Timothy uh, tries to call them out on it to say, you know, you were just bluffing. And it pure John Constantine way, he just said, am I? Right. Was I? I mean, it's, and I think that, that of all the lessons that he learns here, I think Constant, Constantine is the most important lesson because he's showing Timothy Hunter that it's not the generic things aren't what they seem. It's more of the things really are never what they seem. And I, 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 I don't know if I'm making the, distinguishing that clearly. No, no, it's, it, it's, it's great. And that's the, the next step on his journey to, to know that, what seems normal, there's a lot hiding underneath, which, you know, get to the title of this particular book. Right. It's yeah. the shadow world. And it's interesting that it's called the shadow world when that world is the present. Well, it's the shadow, you know, the underground. And again, this is, this is a theme that, uh, that Neil Gaiman plays with quite a lot uh, in, in other works where there's a different world just below the surface. Uh, yeah. hiding hiding in plain sight. Uh, so he's really, you know, uh, Gaiman-esque in this, uh, which brings us to the issue, which is probably the most Gaiman-esque. It's, it's the world of fairy. Right. So. And it's, it's the one probably most closely tied to his, his work on Sandman. It's not the most referential, because I think the end of the fourth book is the most referential to that. And we'll get to that shortly. Except that the third book has the most game and ass creation. Of course, Dream Dream shows up. <laughs> right. Ooh, big shock. Well, no, it makes perfect sense. If you're going to get into the, the magical world of DC, you know, then Dream and and Sandman in general, all the characters from Sandman, the Endless, are, are a big part of that. Yeah. And, and you know, there, there's no reason for him not to pimp his own uh, entry. <laughs> His own yeah. creations in the yeah. DC universe. We're, we're skipping a little bit of the story here, but when when Timothy does meet Dream, he does say, you seem familiar. Right. Which is very, you know, in story, but also medic, 
a meta commentary as well. But in the in the third book, which is again the the land of summer's twilight, uh, it, it's Doctor Occult who takes over, uh, guiding Tim through. And of course, these are the worlds not seen. And of course, it starts with fairy, and uh, it's primarily set in fairy, which which makes sense. But uh, you know, when they first start off, of course, Doctor Occult is like, "Don't take any gifts. Don't eat anything. Don't take iron." <laughs> yeah, leave all these things behind. Follow closely to all of my instructions. And of course, he's talking to a twelve-year-old boy. So said twelve-year-old boy follows none. <laughs> don't don't stray from the path, you know, etc. Well, he sets up he sets up the rules for uh, for any story like this. He's like, these are the things you shouldn't do. So of course, these are the things that are going to happen. Again, like we we have to talk about the artist because Charles Vess. Nobody. <laughs> There's nobody who could have drawn this other than Charles Vess. It looks fantastic. Intensely beautiful. A very vastly different style, but it's it's that bright sort of fake brightness of yeah. the world. It's a, it's it's yeah. He's he's you know representing glamour, and I love the way that Doctor Occult becomes a woman when he enters the realm of fairy. Right. Well, I mean, but that's that's part of the Doctor Occult. You know, that this isn't new with Doctor Occult. Doctor Occult. Is, well, he he has double. He has like they, yeah. They talk him about. Um, he has two souls within right. him. He's kind of truly hermaphroditic in some ways. They are truly hermaphroditic in some ways. Well, exactly. But I, and I, I but I just the way that it's depicted as he's this old gruff guy in a trench coat, but passes through the gate into right. a magical realm. And he's a, you know, a beautiful woman. And he asks, he asks Timothy, she, they ask Timothy to give them a name. And he calls her Rose. Which, of course, was always her name. Yes. So proving that it could be argued that Timothy doesn't really do any magic in this, with the exception of the very, very end of the story. They keep talking about how powerful he is, but he's not really doing anything. He but doesn't, game, well, because he hasn't come into his own yet. And I, you know, I think that that's what they're trying to to get him before he comes into his own, before he is able to. But Gaiman does drop little hints about his, he can, he can perceive the truths around him. He can see magic, even though well, it doesn't come right out and say it. It's his perception of things. So, because they're, they're in the land of fairy and they end up like in a marketplace as one does yes. in the land of fairy. And, uh, you know, the whole rule about don't eat, don't take whatever. So he meets a variety of characters within the land of fairy and, uh, at some point, uh, it's snot, right? Is uh, so some kind of fairy creature attempts to place a magical object on Timothy Hunter without Timothy Hunter knowing. So he, so if he leaves fairy, you're not allowed to take anything from fairy. So he would then become snot's slave or whatever. Well, he's caught, and uh, and so they bring in. Um, what is it? Uh, uh, Old Glory, I think, is the the name of the character, who's the sort of judge of things, and uh, so <laughs> he's the police officer. What's all this then? <laughs> What's all this then? Uh, <laughs> so his ruling is that uh, he rules against Snot, and and basically says that Timothy Doctor Occult and Yo Yo was the owl. Yo Yo is his owl. Can each take a thing from Snot's home for their own? And, uh, of course, this is important. Each of the three characters takes something that becomes of value later. You know, Hunter picks an egg, and he, he just randomly selects this egg, and, of course, it's called a mundane egg. 
So he thinks it's not much of a thing because it's just mundane. Of course, this comes, it's, it's not just a generic thing. It's a, it's a very important thing that uh, ends yes. up, you know, being a, a thing later. But uh, once this happens, it seems like kind of a one-off humorous bit with this hilarious fairy creature snot. And, and they have this incident at the fair, and then they continue moving on. And uh, this is where Dr. Occult takes him and kind of shows him uh, sort of the rest of the uh, unseen worlds, the rest of the, not fairy lands, but all of the kind of magical lands that exist on the, like, on the edges. Exactly. You know, first they, they come upon a giant that asks him a riddle, and the answer to the riddle is just happens to be what Rose had taken uh, as her gift. Right. Which was so a mirror. And then they move on to meet the king under the mountain, who could be Arthur, who could be... Could be Arthur. And the bard singing next to Arthur could very well be Sir Thomas More. Or it could, you know, it could be any, any mythical hero. Well, no, no. The Arthur was the the, the king, or the but they, but they, Arthur, but, yeah, the, but there was a bard singing along him, and 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 a lot of it, they went overboard to make sure that the pers- the bard's name was Thomas or Tom or Tommy, mm. all the various names. And of course, I maybe I'm reading too much in the into that, but I my immediate thought was, okay, well, that's the the bard singing of Arthur's deeds would then have to be Thomas More. But then they also say that now you know this person as Arthur and you know, so we know Arthur, but it doesn't have to be. It could be any. It could be any it. bard. Yeah. But is Thomas More the more any, any bard? Any, yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So they let him go because no holds barred. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then we meet the, the queen of fairy. Right. Oh, we, we have, we have a brief, uh, brief uh, flirtation with Baba Yaga. Oh, I forgot about Baba Yaga. How can I forget about Baba Yaga? I mean, it's a house yeah. with chicken legs. Come on. Right. And then th- that's just kind of a... That's, that's an example of Timothy leaving the path. Right. And he leaves the path and he gets captured by Baba Yaga and eventually is saved by, by Rose and, of course, by Yo-Yo, who has the magic chain that it took from... So, you know, it's... It all comes full circle. Everything. It all comes for full circle, and uh, you know he leaves the path, etc. Things happen, and uh, all of that working up to him finally meeting up with uh, Titania, the uh, the Queen of Fairies, mm-hmm. who may or may not have a relationship with Timothy Hunter. We'll that, see. That we'll see. She tricks him into taking a. He key. tricks right. She she throws a key at him, and he just grabs it, and of course, then he has accepted a gift. Therefore, he is now her slave in the land of fairy. Yeah. Um, that's not revealed till after she allows Dr. Occult to take Timothy Hunter through some of the, these other unseen lands, which include, you know, the land with uh, Warlord and Amethyst, uh, Gemworld. We have yeah. Hell with Etragon. And, of course, we go to Dream. Yes, to the Dreaming, yeah. The dreaming, and he first encounters Cain and Abel, of course, and, yes. uh, and then, of course, then he meets Morpheus. He meets Dream himself. There's a very interesting conversation that happens there. Do you do you have strong feelings about that? No, I, I mean, I, I just I, I should I want to emphasize that all these little worlds they're only brief interludes, but the the way it's described, it's so poetic and lyrical. I I love the way Gaiman describes these these magical other worlds you know it's so ah, it's so inspirational when you read these things it's yeah. it's it's scary and it's and it's wondrous 
And I just, I love this sort of stuff. And it's, it's poetic. Uh, Gaben has a poetry yeah. and it's not necessarily poetry like we think of, but it's lyrical. It is, it's lyrical. It's lyrical. Yeah. There's it's purple. Yeah. It's, it's a wonderful, it's a, just a glorious violet purple prose. <laughs> yeah. I love this stuff. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I think it's really important that he meets dream and I think it's, Dream, I think, is not actually the most important of the endless that he meets, but uh, or for his purposes at least. But we'll get to that at some point. So, uh, Doctor Call takes him through like this door. He goes to all these various places. He sees a lot of the um, the weirder end of magic, let's yes. call it, which makes sense when you're in the land of Fey. And eventually, they return, and that's where Titania basically says you took a key from me therefore i own you unless you could give a gift of equal value right and dr occult like so throughout all this dr dr occult and rose are keep switching personas you know it's dr occult at this point when they come back and he he doesn't he he basically tells tim he's like i i can't help you here you you did the things i told you not to do yeah rules are rules buddy and uh, eventually Tim reaches into his pocket and presents the mundane egg. And he's like, well, I don't think this is really anything of value. But it turns out this is one of the most valuable things you could find. Right. It is a mundane, mundane egg, which Tim thinks mundane means just average and nothing. Normal, average, you know. Of course, it turns out it's an egg that contains a world not yet born. The value of that is even higher than the key that Titania has given him, and she has no choice due to the rules of fairy. Uh, she has no choice but to accept that and then to release Timothy Hunter. And, of course, there's this telling moment at the end of that where she's, uh, you know, where he leaves with Dr. Colt. They're heading back to the, the real world, as it were. And, of course, she's they, they show the scene with her and her faces changing throughout including one that looks suspiciously like Timothy Hunter's mother. She's holding the mundane egg and thinking about a world not yet born. And she says, and will you also hatch out worlds, my son? Yes. And this brings me to something. And again, this is something Gaiman does a lot in his writing. He uses stories to represent the creation of stories. Right. Yes. So this, so this whole thing can be seen as a metaphor for telling stories. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you, like I said, he does this a lot in his writing. It, it's all over Sandman. Well, it's essentially the premise of Sandman. We create worlds with our stories that become real, and they in turn inspire us to create more stories. He, I mean, this this whole thing could be seen as, yeah, like I said, this is a metaphor for being an author. The magic that. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, tell me if I'm going a little bit overboard here. No, I think you're you're yeah. catching it correctly. Yeah. So Timothy can be seen as as his magic is writing magic words. Words are spelled, stories are magic, and he has the potential to give the power, give the world great and powerful things, which are more stories. The mundane egg is a metaphor for, for creativity and storytelling, I, ideas waiting to be born. And this is just, I, there's so much going on here that I just, I mean, I had to uh, take a take, just take a step back and you know, take a deep breath and go, wow, there's so much in this, there's so much story in this story, uh, and I love it. Well, and there's also like the suggestion that uh, Timothy Hunter may not be of, be completely, let's say, human. Yes, there might which be. Which is revisited later, but it switches things a little bit. This, this, this doesn't remain canon, but I think Neil Gaiman was suggesting a thing, and future writers 
kind of switch things. Let's let's say they switch things around a little bit. Yeah. In uh, the books of magic, as not written by Neil Gaiman. Well, Gaiman created this world and gave, you know, he gave everyone a really wonderful playground to play on. And uh, unfortunately, not many people took it up. Yeah, and I think we can maybe touch on that briefly uh, later. But uh, do we want to move on to the fourth issue? Of course, uh, as as these uh, this type of storytelling goes. Uh, Timothy Hunter ends up back on Earth in regular time again, and and it becomes Mr. E's turn. Mr. E, um, yeah, Mr. E, yeah, uh, yeah. So, and this is where things get a little, things go a little cockeyed. And I know that seems odd to say, like everything's a little cockeyed, but uh, this is where things get. Uh, well, of course, it's the fourth of fourth four books we, we uh this is what happens so this one is of course is called the road to nowhere and uh it's illustrated by paul johnson again quite lovely some really and, quite quite uh surreal and just great imagery in this and in, in parts yeah, of this. yeah this is the one where i felt like it got a little 90s ish looking um but i think it's it's appropriate to the subject matter yes and uh so Timothy returns and uh, he is sent off with Mr. E into the future. The setup is, and, and throughout all this, this series, we've had the other three of the guides showing what I would say is some reservations about uh, handing Tim over to Mr. E. Mr. E is the one that thinks that thought that Tim should just be killed. Yeah. Just take him out. Right. Rather than allowing him, rather rather than allowing him a choice between using magic for good or evil, or using magic at all and not using magic, Mister E wanted to just eliminate him completely, taking all of uh, taking choice off the board. And so there is some reservation, uh, mm-hmm. particularly shown by Constantine. Most of all, I think Constantine really does not trust Mister E. No. And the Phantom Stranger is like. Well, mystery is here for balance, and there's a lot of talk about chaos throughout this the series. There's a lot of talk about chaos and order, and uh, so Mister E represents a balance between the two. So off Tim and Mister E go into the future, and it's also very specifically mentioned that Mister E can only go so far in the future until he reaches a point where he can't return. Yeah, he's only supposed to go a thousand years into the future. Or something, yeah, something like that. Yeah, and it, it, and kind of the the idea is that he's going to show Tim a possible future where he's gone bad, right? As the consequence, he's going to show him the consequences. This right. this is about the consequences, exactly. So just want to try to give him a warning of this is how bad it can get, how bad it can be, right. one of your possible futures, uh, which yes. all makes sense. But then Mister E decides to take him further. And further, and further, and further, yeah. and further, uh, and all the way. Well, first of all, we get a, a really neat, uh, you know, a future time when magic and science are the same, right. which I thought, which I thought was a pretty interesting concept, right there. Some of this mirrors the first issue. Oh yeah, where Phantom Stranger takes him to the past and shows him the, you know, which we talked about is the the rise and fall of science and magic and how they are often incompatible. And 
Mr. E kind of goes, he shows him going forward, it, it mirrors. It's sort of the same thing. It's the rise and fall there's a magic versus science yeah there's a really funny part where because magic and science are are equal and there's a glorious you know wonderful time and then tim says what goes wrong and mr e just says what a cynical attitude that is i can't believe you you think about that he said right he says well what happens well something bad happens something did go wrong (laughs) yeah (laughs) and mr e represents he's the he's the he's the puritan uh, very, he's the very most puritanical. So. He is the, uh, you know, he is the the one who is like um, magic must only be used for good, and he views himself as the arbiter of what is good, and anything that does not fit within Mister E's worldview must then be destroyed. And we get Mister E's backstory, which is pretty messed up. It's pretty messed up, and then I, I Gaiman does show like in some of the uh, some of the dialogue and how mystery particularly talks about women that shows kind of how messed up he was, and we could get into some psychology, uh, which I think Neil Gaiman is giving us a little bit of, but he's not going all the way. He's letting us make the our own determination about just how messed up Mister E is. And we find out in a subsequent series down the line the nature of how messed up mystery is, but that's that's not germane to this conversation. Yeah, he's just he's uh, just a messed up puritanical fanatic, right? And uh, so, mystery proceeds to take him through just this massive level of change, going and and I think they end up like what is it thirty forty million years into the future? Billion. Billion, right. Yeah, we go all the way to the end of the end of the world, the end of the universe. Takes him to the very end of time. Yeah. And uh, uh, again, kind of visually displayed in a really interesting manner in terms of how the movement goes. And they meet a lot of people along the way and they go through a lot of time periods along the way. It's not just like he goes from, you know, 1990 to 50 billion years in the future or whatever right. it is. Yes. Uh, there's a lot of sort of stops along the way, although they're very brief. And we see kind of how humanity changes. We see how, and I appreciate the fact that Gaiman doesn't just, like when we get things like the Legion of Superheroes, where like however many years in the future it is, people still look the same and they talk mm-hmm. the same. Exactly. And that doesn't make sense because language changes uh, throughout time and and evolution takes its course and whatever yeah in fact timothy hunter says that at one point when he's talking to a native and he says i'm sorry i don't speak end of the world which is funny i think gaiman does a really good job of showing that you know the the very physical appearance and the way that we communicate changes over thousands of years i mean we don't speak the same now that we did 200 years ago right no absolutely we don't speak uh, the same now as we did 100 years ago so and of course there was a time when people were shorter and lived near the water uh (laughs) Uh, but we see, you know, life. I don't want to even say humanity. We see life change and, and alter as as they continue through. And as they go, Mr. E gets just creepier and creepier and creepier. Eventually, we reach what is, like, legitimately the the end of, well, we reach the next to last stage of the end of all things. And I don't mean the end of the world. I mean the end of all things, the end of the universe, the end of existence. And, of course, it's like this weird floating rock in which the last vestiges of 
life are existing in sort of some avatars or tropes. Yeah, they're all trumps from uh, from tarot cards. Right. Yeah. yeah, you've got the king, the queen, the, the joker, her- the hierophant, the yeah, the hierophant, and it's you know, and there's references made to various other sort of tarot or avatar type individuals who have slowly disappeared. Yes. As the energies that sustain them disappear. And the only, by the end of it, the only living thing other than, uh, or the only thing that has an appearance of life other than Hunter and Mr. E, of course, is the fool or Jack or Jack O'Fool or John. A man who looks a lot like John Constantine. Looks exactly like John Constantine. And so, I love that callback of, at the end of all things, it is a John Constantine. And is John Constantine the the fool that is the last of all things? Is is the last of all things a fool? Yes. Yeah. I mean, Gaiman's really good at this. I know we keep saying yes, that. Yes, he but... is. Yes, he is. And I, I think it's really, really, really telling that throughout all of this, it's Constantine who is the constant. And I know I yep. made that thing before, but I just, I feel like I need to constantly reiterate the constancy of constant. <laughs> There's lots um, of constants going on. Yeah, I mean, this is all on purpose. Yeah, oh yeah. Unlike, say, a J.J. Abrams, <laughs> uh, Neil Gaiman never forgets to pay off something he's, he set up in the beginning. Right. Yeah, everything comes full circle. It's, it's just so... It's just so fascinating. And I don't want to. I don't want to go too much into all of the dialogue. There's a lot of really fascinating dialogue, yeah. and there's a lot of really interesting concepts that are being discussed. And not just because I think we're going long-winded here a little bit, but I, I also feel like we can't. We could go for a long time just about five pages and just really delve uh, deeply into existence and what is magic and how does magic and and what is life what is humanity what is magic and and who is what and i I just um no one wants to hear like a philosophical dissertation on this because i think gaiman does it and paul johnson do it in such a succinct and interesting way Mm -hmm. that i i i kind of want to leave it as a thing that exists without a lot of exposition. It's definitely something you need to read and experience. So this happens and. (laughs) So, yeah. So we get to the end of all things when no one is around. And that's when Mr. Timothy is like, it's not even dark anymore. It's nothing. Yeah. There's just nothing around. And Mr. E. Yeah. uh, Reveals his, his intentions that he's had this whole time, which is to kill Timothy and there's no one around to protect him. Right. And, and the idea is that he, he reveals to Timothy that they have gone too far to return. Exactly. That he has gone beyond mystery has gone beyond his ability to return. So he, he attempts to kill, uh, he attempts to kill Timothy, but his trusty owl yo-yo or his trusty yo-yo owl, (laughs) uh, comes out of nowhere has been sent by the past because he's his familiar. Um, he's been sent by the Phantom Stranger and Dr. Colton and John Constantine. He's been sent from the past to protect Tim Hunter. And uh, so of course uh, the, the owl appears out of nowhere and blocks the death stroke. And sacrifices himself to save Timothy. To save Tim Hunter. All for apparent not because then the owl is dead and Mystery, of course, proceeds to try to still kill Hunter uh, just by choking him out, essentially. Yep. 
And then suddenly, out of nowhere... Comes a man with a book. Comes a man with a book and a woman with an onk. Yes. You know, and they talk... We get this in the, in the stories of death and in Sandman, mm-hmm. where we know that death will be the end. At the end, she will be the only thing closes, left. She closes the door. Yes. And she brings death to the universe itself. And she's... The, and it's just... I, I love this. You know, death is just there to go, okay, you know what? You two, I've taken you both, but it was a long time ago. I love the fact that it's, so it's, of course, destiny is the next to last to go. Yes. And and always would be because he has to close the book. Death closes the door. Destiny closes the book. Exactly. Not in that order. But I love that it's destiny shows up and he's like, hey, hey there, this is not appropriate. (laughs) (laughs) He just shows up. And he's like, this is not the way to act at the end of the world. Yeah, exactly. At the end of time. He's like, you two are not in my book. This is not right. <laughs> and then he's like, oh, crap, wait, no, there is another chapter. He's like, I'm tired. I'm done with this. Why are you two here? <laughs> yeah, so. It's kind, of, it's kind of funny, but it's also kind of serious, right? Yeah. It's, yeah, and it's kind of tragic. I mean, death ends destiny's life. But she always was going to, right? And he he's relieved. He's like, "Oh, okay." Yeah, I <laughs> don't have to do this like, anymore. Yeah, she's kind of like, you know, hold my beer. I got this. <laughs> so um, she sends Mister E back the long way, right? So yeah, she ends destiny, and then she's like, you know, you have to go back. She's like, I, you know, Mister E's like, well, can't you just take me on? And she's like, nope. Yeah you have to go back. He's like, well, just send me back. And she's like, uh-uh, you got to walk the yeah. whole 50 million years or whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, but of course she takes Tim back right away. Because Tim is not the one that created this. It was Mr. E. So he is punished. Whereas she's, yeah. you know, and it's, of course it's typical, you know, it's, it's game and writing death in, in a way that only game and can. Yes. And, you know, it's, it's quite lovely. And, and you know, she, she sends it back. And, of course, he, you know, the trench coat brigade is... So so the scene ends with her uh, telling Timothy that she's going to send him back and kind of being the the, the lovely kind of caring person that, that she is. The mother figure again. Presented to be, again, another mother figure. And it's important yes. to note, uh, we should have started off with this, but there are numerous mother figures for Timothy in this. And, and it's, you know, he doesn't have a mom. It's just him and his dad. The, the mother figure is is kind of very important. Game and plays with that uh, quite a bit. But uh, she sends him back. And so we go back to present day and it's the trench coat brigade, like dithering and prevaricating. Oh, we did the wrong thing. Or Phantom Stranger admits he was wrong, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And then, then, you know, it's just Timothy just shows up and he's like, you know, what are you guys going on about? <laughs> you know, he's, like, kid. he's like, he's like, you know, he's basically like, you guys are more emo than me. And then he's asked again to make his decision. Does right. he uh, wanted you? Before that, I just wanted to point out that uh, there's a Wizard of Oz moment too. Oh, Yes. And There's a there. great Wizard of Oz moment where he looks at John Constantine. It's like, and you were there. Uh, yeah. So throughout all this, so, so Tim has seen everything or everything that he has been allowed to see based on the guides that he has had. This is the end of his journey and he must make a final decision. Will he be magic or will he not? Right. And uh, Timothy decides no. And he's, he's sort of like, I just, I feel like I'm in danger. And he's like, I just want to be, I just want to be a regular boy. Yeah. And y'all are creepy. Right. <laughs> Don't like you. But, and this is what we were talking about in the beginning. As it turns out, it doesn't matter that he right. 
says no now because he's already said yes in the beginning. Right. And, and the thing is, he, he, he says, no, I don't want to do this. And the trench coat brigade is like, okie doke. And then they just disappear. Yep. And then he starts walking away. And, and then he's like, wait, no, wait, I've changed my mind. Yeah. But he's, he's like, oh, it's, it's too late. They're gone. You know, he, he almost immediately is like, no, no, wait, come back. I didn't want to do this. Um, and then we have Phantom Stranger, Dr. Cult, and uh, Constantine talking like in some, you know, bar room or something, comparing yeah. notes. And Dr. Cult is like, you know, Constantine is like, this is ridiculous, whatever. And, you know, Dr. Cult's like, are you stupid? Constantine's like, what are you talking about? And the, the Phantom Stranger is like, he made his choice the minute he said, I'll yeah. come with you. As soon as he decided he was going to go on this journey, he already accepted that life. So, and then that is... Emphasize at the end when Timothy comes home to his mundane world, his his mm-hmm. normal life, and his dad sitting there watching TV. And the final panel is, well, the final panels is Timothy taking his yo-yo and recreating the owl. And then he looks so, out the window and goes, "Magic, yeah, magic. end of jazz hands." And then <laughs> magic, and then it jazz ends. hands. And it's um, and it's and. It ends with uh, an open possibility for stories to be told. It's yeah. such incredible storytelling, and yeah. I, I, I don't know if we've yeah I don't know if we've emphasized that yet. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> have we? But uh, I, the fact that Gaiman has uh, leaves all these stories open and all these ideas open to tell is a mark of like a master at the height. Uh, telling yeah. a really interesting story and a really affecting story. And basically throwing down the gauntlet and saying, take this and run with it. This wasn't supposed to be the story that D- this wasn't the story DC wanted. But it's the story DC needed. And it's the story that they got. And, and I, at, at the end of the day, I think it's a story that they fumbled. I enjoy books of the, the subsequent books of Magic series. And I enjoy some of the, you know, the books of Fairy and John A. Reber kind of took yes. over. You know, at some point there's a, a I don't know if this is apocryphal or not, but there's these this idea that uh, there's quotes. There's people saying that um, part of why Reber left the books of magic after doing 50 issues was that he grew to hate Timothy yes. Hunter. And for me, it's and and I did too. He, Timothy Hunter becomes this uns, insufferable brat, right? And I'm like, well, John A. Reber, you're the one that wrote him that way, exactly. You don't get to break something and then complain that it doesn't work. Right. And then subsequent writers, also Peter Gross and others, just didn't. And even the current run that just kind of ended, I, I, I felt like they, they wrote Timothy Hunter as, as a piece of, as, as a shitty little prick. Yeah. Part of the language. But uh, I'm like, you can't complain. You know, I, I, I just, it's, it's like nobody has ever gotten a proper handle on how to use Timothy Hunter since since Neil Gaiman created him. Well, I, you know, to come full circle, actually someone has, and that's J.K. Rowling. <laughs> <laughs> she wrote right. Timothy Hunter as if Timothy Hunter was a good character. So. Right. I, the frustrating thing is is like how good this comic book is and, and, and how badly he was used yeah. subsequently. There's a like, like like we mentioned before. There's this is a really rich and vibrant world. Timothy Hunter was set up to be something important within it and within the the DC continuity, the DC universe. It's all there. It's ready to be taken. Yeah. And um, and no one no one picked it up. 
there are parts about the subsequent series that I enjoy, particularly some oh, of the art. Yeah, no, I, I, I'll, I'll restate. I, um, I liked the books of magic, the Vertigo series. Right. To, the, to a certain extent. There are stories I didn't like, of course, but uh, overall, I enjoyed that series. And I enjoyed Books of Fairy, like you said. Yeah, but overall, this, Timothy Hunter has, a, has the possibility of being just an outstanding character. Someone um, really enduring. Like you said, nothing, nothing has been done with him. Nothing uh, special has been done with him. Right, nothing interesting. Exactly. If anything is ripe for a reboot, a rebirth. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I, I, you know, it it just seems like he hasn't been well paired, and I don't I don't have faith that barring Neil Gaiman himself writing him, which I don't think will ever happen. Yeah. Uh, I just I don't I don't see it. I I, I I can think of a few writers who might have an interesting take on him, but I think you just it's mm-hmm. it's an adolescent boy, and I think writers have a hard time writing him without making him unpleasant because let's they be make honest, him a snotty little kid yeah right and most adolescent boys are very unpleasant but you're the writer you can make it different that's what that's what drives me crazy about the reaper stuff it's like oh i hate this kid well write him differently you're the yeah. creator ah, anyway yeah. you know it's it, it's a shame that didn't it the, the the promise of this miniseries was never really capitalized on and that's a shame but yeah. that does not take away from the fact that this is a four-issue little mini masterpiece, and I like it a lot. Thank you for, for recommending this. And as a thing that stands alone, it's, I, I think it's really important in the, in the canon of, of particularly DC comics, but uh, just comics yeah. in general. Well, if, yeah, exactly. And if you see you know, when this was written and what comes after, it really, this and Sandman pretty much set the stage for what Vertigo would be. Right. Uh, and Hellblade. And Hellblazer, and, but you, you know what I mean. And Swamp Thing and, you know, a, f- a few others. But, uh, yeah, I mean, this was this was the, like, attempt to solidify magic in the in the DC universe. And I think that they did the right, uh, that Gaiman and the artist did the right thing. Absolutely. But definitely recommend this. Please go out and read it if Highly. you haven't. Yeah. Would you like to know what's happening next time? I would like, uh, Paul, what is, uh, I think it's your turn next. Would you like to tell us what is, uh, what's happening? Yes. Next time on an all new edition of the Collected Edition, we will be discussing the 1985 12 issue limited series, Vision and the Scarlet Witch. Oh uh, my. This, yes. This is not in any way going to try to tie in with anything that's happening next month. Huh. Yeah. Huh. I can't imagine. I don't know of any, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, this is written by Steve Englehart uh, with Art mostly by Richard Howell. There are other artists that are that crop up during it, uh, which is fairly common in that, that era, that those bygone right. days. So this is the second Vision in Scarlet Witch series, and it's the one where Wanda becomes pregnant. Oh my. But that's a situation that will in no way cause any problems in the future. No, I don't imagine. No. <laughs> uh, so that's what we're reading. Vision in the Scarlet Witch, 1985. That's great. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks everybody for listening. Uh, as always, we appreciate your comments. So go to our website, collectededitionpodcast.com, where you can leave comments on this individual episode or send us an email, comments at collectededitionpodcast.com or hit me up on Twitter, uh, collectededpod, that's collectededpod. And as always, we really want to hear, uh, if we really want to have recommendations. So if you have anything you'd like us to talk about, let us know because we're um, desperately searching for more recommendations. Indeed. Okay. Uh, Thanks again for listening, everybody. And until next time, keep reading comics.
and be well. You've been listening to The Collected Edition, a comic book podcast. The Collected Edition is a Daddy Elk production. All materials used on the show are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. The show can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, as well as online at CollectedEditionPodcast.com, where comments can be left on individual episodes. You can also send us feedback at comments at CollectedEditionPodcast.com or on Twitter at CollectedEdPod. That's Collected, E-D-P-O-D. The Collected Edition, a comic book podcast, is for entertainment purposes only. Are you-